Well, thank you so much for that introduction, Peter. And it's truly a joy to be here when we think about the privilege of meeting to worship the one true God in a place that it's illegal for us to do so, in a place that we can worship openly. This is a great joy. There's a couple challenges when someone studies history. Uh, maybe you're aware of a few of them. One is when we study history, we typically do so, we can do it out of balance. And what I mean by, it, by that is this. Historians have a way to study history that's called change over time. So a primary way that people study the past is by seeing how different it is um, from what it is today. And that's a helpful way to study history, but what is often lost in that approach is that people overlook the similarities of people in the past with the similarities of people today. Uh, and what I have here and what, what, what I'm gonna read here is called the Letter of Dionysius, and this is just an introduction. We're gonna spend our time in 2 Peter uh, chapter one. But what the early Christians, this is from uh, around the first century, uh, 103 AD, what these early Christians struggled with and what Peter's writers in 2 Peter struggled with is they were being oppressed. They were being mistreated. They were being mocked. And maybe you've had the similar experience for your faith. You've made it known in the workplace. You've made it known in your family that you're a Christian and you're walking with Jesus. And you haven't received the response that you were expecting to receive. I want to tell you that you're in good company if that's the case. And I want to provide for you in this message, what is the thing that is going to help you in that place? What is the thing that is going to sustain your faith, help you keep going, help you press on? And, and that is the word of God. But hear, hear this from uh, an early Christian, and I want you to listen to how many times afflictions or persecutions has come up. Uh, he wrote this, like I said, 130 A.D., and he's explaining what, what was the characteristics of Christians at the time. He said, uh, they exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, all the while surpassing the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They're put to death, but yet restored to life. They are poor, but they make many rich. They lack everything, yet they, overflow, yet they overflow in everything. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They're spoken ill of, and yet they are justified. They are reviled, but they bless. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet they're punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if raised from the dead. They are assailed by the Jews as barbarians. They're persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. And so too in uh, the people that Peter is writing to, when we understand the context of the, the letter of Second Peter, People are saying that the Christian faith is a myth, a silly myth, a fairy tale, not something that people should take seriously. You can see that in um, 
2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. And later on in the letter, Peter tells them that, uh, he says that people are mocking the second coming of Jesus. They, to them, it's a joke. It's something to be made fun of. So this is the context of the letter. There's Christians that are being persecuted for their faith. They're being mocked. They're being made fun of. And Peter's wanting to give them help in the midst of that struggle. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. There's two main things we're going to consider. We're going to consider an eyewitness and a burning lamp. An eyewitness and a burning lamp. Let me read. I'm, I'm going to start in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Father God, this is your holy word, and I am desperately in need of uh, help and for you to be glorified. We want Jesus to be magnified here this morning. We want you, oh great God, this, this word calls you the majestic glory. Uh, we want to be awed by your greatness. We want to be floored by your majesty. We want to be pressed in understand that we have a reliable source in the Bible that we can trust, even though there's so many afflictions and difficulties in this life. And God, would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. So my aim this morning and the main point of this message is that we should pay attention to the Bible and trust it. Uh, because the scriptures are reliable, necessary, and inspired by God. So the application and the point of this message is we should pay attention and trust the Bible, God's word, because the Bible is reliable, necessary, and inspired by God. That brings us to our two thoughts that we have is an eyewitness and a burning lamp. Peter tells us in verse 16 what he did not do as an apostle. Uh, he's going to give us the negative before he gives us the positive. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You might remember in your Bibles, uh, 
Many gospel accounts have the account of the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John go up on a mountain and they're with Jesus and Jesus is transfigured before, before them. His glory shines forth, bursting forth like the sun in radiance. And one gospel, Mark, says that it was, his clothes were so white and so bright that there was no launderer on earth that could make them that bright. Uh, in that moment, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' glory shone forth in an immaculate, beautiful moment. And God the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And what Peter's doing is he's recalling that event. He's recalling that event, and Peter's saying that he's an eyewitness of that event. Eyewitnesses hold a large amount of credibility. You think in a courtroom, when you call in an eyewitness, that particular person has something to say, has something that's valuable to the situation. And Peter is an eyewitness to this event. But my question is, why does Peter bring up this event? Peter saw many miracles of Jesus. Peter saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with some bread and some fish. Peter saw Jesus walk on water. Peter saw Jesus rise Lazarus from the dead. So why is this particular moment in Jesus' life pointed out by Peter? And I think it's this. I think that the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain sets a certain expectation about his second coming. So you can see it even in how Peter talks about it uh, in verse 17. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Mount of Transfiguration is something of the glory that Jesus will have in his second coming. It's like the preview of the, of the blockbuster event. So if you watch a movie, there might be a trailer that has a little snippet, but then later there's this blockbuster movie that's coming that's going to be indescribably better. So Peter selects this event because it proves what people around the, who the letter, the letter were written to were doubting. They were doubting the second coming of Jesus. They were saying that it, it's been so long and he hasn't come. And they were trying to compel the Christians to doubt the second coming. And Peter says, no, no, it's very real. And, and I've seen it with my own eyes. I'm an eyewitness of majesty. He saw something so great and so majestic. And you notice both Jesus and the Father are described in some particular ways here. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty in verse 16. And then the Father is described, only place in the Bible that the Father is described this way, the majestic glory. Majesty has to do with the king. Glory has to do with a perfect, beautiful, moral perfection shining forth. So we have an eyewitness as we think about the second coming, but that's not where we want to settle our hearts this morning. We want to settle our hearts on the burning lamp, what is the burning lamp? You can see that right in your Bibles if you look in verse 19. One of the things that Peter's bringing to bear is the second, is the Mount of Transfiguration that he was an eyewitness. 
And then in verse 19, he's saying another thing that we have to settle our hearts on, to rely on, to trust in in the midst of uncertain times. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And you might look at your Bible and say, where are you getting Bible from or scriptures from? All I see is the prophetic word. And I just want you to follow down to verse 21 a little bit. Um, sorry, verse 20. Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture. So he uses the phrase, the prophetic word. But then a little further on, he uses the phrase, prophecy of Scripture. So these phrases are one and the same. What Peter's talking about is the Bible, is God's word, is the Scriptures that you have right here. The, things that you, the thing that we have in the Bible is a sure thing. It's a reliable thing. It's a necessary thing. And it's a divinely inspired thing. So how is the scripture reliable? Well, what Peter says about it is very interesting. In verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. This idea of more fully confirmed is the idea of an anchor that drops out of a boat and sinks to the very bottom of the ocean. And that anchor is what's holding that ship fast from moving in the midst of the storm. The storm rages against the boat and beats against its side, but that anchor is holding it fast. And what God wants us to know this morning is that that's what the Bible and its promises are for the Christian. It's that thing that is your security and the thing that you can believe in and trust in. There's so many voices in our culture today. There's so many TikTok videos and influencers that can be used for good. And I'm sure there are some people that are using it in a good way. But there's also ideas and thoughts that can be in those videos that you can't really rely on. The Bible says, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. When you are intaking those videos and intaking that media, you're not really sure if you can truly believe what you're hearing. Same things with the different news stations we listen to. There's so many facts and fact checkers, and fact, I'm fact checking the fact checkers. Where is the place that we can come and have surety that something's true, true with a capital T? The answer is the word of God. They're more fully confirmed. Listen to some, how some other Bible, Bible translators translate this term. Uh, the Bible is completely reliable. That's how the NIV translates it. The Bible is fully confirmed, which we've seen in the SV. The NET Bible says... The Bible is an altogether reliable thing. CSB version says the Bible is strongly confirmed. All of this language is meant to stir you up that when you have the Bible and its promises, you have something you can trust. You have something you can bank on. It's more reliable than a reliable plane. It's more reliable than a reliable friend. It's more reliable than anything in the world. It's that thing that you can trust. Um, 
And why do I say promises? So if you look back, Peter actually talks about promises in uh, chapter 1. I'll just read it to you. Chapter, Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. It says, by which he's granted us his precious and very great promises. So there's promises in the Bible to be believed, and there's the Bible to be relied on as what's true in your life. So let me give you a few examples of what I'm saying that you might want to think about. These might uh, land on you in your life, or they may not. But they're just kind of examples for, for what I'm saying, how we should rely and how we should trust the Bible, okay? Maybe you're a mother here today, and when you think about your role and task of mothering, you're completely overwhelmed by the responsibility that you have and those little rascals. You love them, and you would do anything for them, but you feel perplexed, and the challenge is too great for you. And you feel like you're origami, and you're about to just fold. Where would you go in the Bible for a promise that you can rely on? I submit one to you, and this is in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And so what you do in the midst of being overwhelmed and being crushed is you find a promise in God's word, and you rely on that promise, and you trust it for you and for your situation. You say, I don't have the strength in myself but God is going to give me the strength that I need to care for these kids, to do what God's calling me to do. Maybe your current situation with work is very unknown, and you're worried about the future, and you're not sure what's next. What is, God's, what is a promise from God's word that you can rely on? Well, I would submit Psalm uh, 23, verse 1. says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So what you do in that situation is you say, yes, I have a lot of uncertainty, but I'm going to trust what God promises for me in Christ. I'm going to trust that God is my shepherd, and I'm not going to want anything that I need. There's not going to be anything that I'm lacking that I need essentially for my life and my, uh, and my, and my living. And you trust that promise. You put faith in that promise. We can't just gloss over the promises in the Bible, as Charles Spurgeon says. We need to lay down on them. We need to test them that, to know that they're true. I'm sure there's promises from God's word that are coming into your head right now that you say, yes, I've trusted. So maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Let me give you a couple more. Maybe some of you this morning have never had a relationship in your life that you've moved towards the person and that person hasn't thrown you away. You've been so scarred by being cast aside so many times that you're afraid. You're afraid to come to Jesus. Maybe if you're thinking in your head, maybe if I come to Jesus and trust him and believe that he died for my sins and he rose again, maybe he'll treat me like so many of these other people in my life that have treated me so badly. Well, here's a promise for you if you're in that situation. Jesus says in John 6, 37, uh, I don't think we have it for the screen, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast away. Do you have a promise from God that if you 
come to Jesus, he's not going to treat you that way. He's not going to cast you away. So the Bible, what we have is a reliable thing, something we can trust. But not only is the Bible reliable, the Bible is also necessary for you in your life. It's reliable and it's necessary for you both individually as a person and also as a church. As you think about you, you as a part of this corporate church, it's, it's necessary. And where I get that from in, the, in our text is Peter says it's as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So this is a simile because it uses like or as. And what Peter is saying is that the Bible is like a lamp that is burning and it's giving off light and guidance when all around you is dark and all around you is not a place that you can have guidance if you looked at, that, at those things. Peter describes the, the world as a dark place. And if I asked your your own conscience, could you tell me that this is true? Would you agree with me that Peter might be onto something, that the world is a dark place? There's something good that we have, though. We have a burning lamp. We have a light for guidance and for help and for healing. And Peter says that that is the word of God. So what I mean by when I say the Bible is uh, necessary, I, I mean that if you're a Christian, you need it. Uh, if you were to live without it, it would be like trying to live your life without food or with, like without water. You remember the words of Jesus. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You need bread for your physical life and water for your physical life. You need the word of God to sustain you and help you and grow you spiritually. We need it. It's a necessary thing. It's that light that's burning in the midst of darkness. It's that place of security and warmth that we can have on a, on, in a dark place. But I draw your attention to one more thing before we move on from this. Peter says you do well to pay attention to it. And so let me encourage you. Are you currently paying attention to the word of God? Are you currently in your life finding ways to fill your life with what God says? We mentioned some of the other voices that are in our life. There's all sorts of people that are quick to give us advice. And we should listen to other people's advice. But we should really pay attention to the word of God. It's that one voice that should be above and be greater than all other voices that we hear. It's what God thinks about the world. It's what God thinks about my marriage. It's what God thinks about my family. It's what God thinks about how things should be. And so Peter's right. We do well to pay attention to this word. It's like it's necessary. It's a lamp burning in a dark place. Uh, it gives us guidance. You remember Psalm uh, 119, 105? says, your lamp is a light to my feet. Is a, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 6.23 says, for the commandment is a lamp and its teaching is light. It's no surprise that in a fallen world, in Genesis 3, 
Adam and Eve sinned and the world was plunged into despair and into darkness, into sin, it's no surprise that we need a light in the dark place. And that's what God's provided you, the Word of God, that Bible that you hold in your hand. Um, I'm, I work as an electrician, and sometimes we would have a connex that would be filled with lighting fixtures. And we would need a certain light fixture, but it would be all the way back at the end of the connex. And so what I would have to do is climb into the connex, climb over the boxes, climb under the boxes, and get all the way to the back. And what I would experience frequently is that container door would, would shut. And I just found myself in complete darkness. How am I, I going to get out of this thing? And in that moment, the most important thing you have is your light. You pull out that little flashlight, and whatever you do, you don't want to lose the light. The light is what's going to help you in this, in this fallen world, in this dark place. And that's what we have in the scriptures, a burning lamp. But it won't always be this way. You won't always need the scriptures in the Bible like you need it now. How can I say such a thing? Well, because Peter says such a thing. He uses the temporal word until, right? So we need to pay attention to a lamp shining in a dark place until something happens. So there's going to be an event that is coming that is going to happen that is going to change about your life, about my life. And that is when Jesus comes back. And there's two metaphors that Peter uses about the return of Jesus. One is... It's like day dawning. It's like when you're on your porch and you see the sun come up and it, the light breaks forth across the sky in more beauty and splendor than you can possibly imagine. That's what it's going to be like at the coming of Jesus for believers. The day dawns. And secondly, he uses another uh, metaphor of the morning star rising. It's like a dark night in the sky where there's this one star that comes up and beams forth light. So the Bible is what we need now when we're in this dark, fallen world. But when we are in a world in which righteousness dwells, in which Jesus will come again and make for us a new heavens and a new earth, we won't need God's word in the same way. There's going to be a new world, a new thing that God is doing. So we have the burning lamp, it's, um, it's reliable, it's necessary. And the last thing we'll talk about before we consider just some applications is that the Bible is divinely inspired by God. That means God wrote it. Some people will say, well, how, man is so sinful, how can I trust God's word that God wrote it when how sinful man is? And I would I reply, well, if you knew how powerful and how glorious God was, you would know that he can use imperfect things to write down exactly what he wants written down. If you had a greater idea of the glory and the majesty and the sovereignty of God, you wouldn't have such a hard time understanding why the Bible was inspired. And so that's where Peter goes next. The word of God is reliable. It's... Um, it's necessary, and it's inspired. In verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, 
but God's, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You can trust your Bible because the Holy Spirit carried those authors along. He inspired them to write down exactly what you hold in your hand. There's so many different authors in the Bible and so many different people, yet there's one precise message that runs through the whole thing, and that is this, that God is holy, and every single one of us have fallen, and we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God did not leave mankind in sin and in despair. He sent forth his only son, Jesus, who lived the perfect life that none of us could live. And he died the sacrificial death on the cross that none of us could die. He took his people's sins on himself on the cross. He bore the wrath of God for them in the place of sinners. And Jesus was laid in the tomb. And on the third day, he rose gloriously and triumphantly up from the grave. So that now, everyone who waves their white flag of surrender, everyone who has been a rebel, but comes to that place in their life that they say, God, I've sinned. I'm not perfect. I've broken your law. And for that, I deserve death. And I deserve to go to hell for my sins. And everyone who trusts that Jesus died for them and paid the price that they couldn't pay, who repents of their sins and believes on Jesus, receives full and total pardon from every sin. Maybe you say, well, my sins are too bad. Maybe you're not a believer here today, and you just, when you think about your sin, you think, there's no way that God could save me even from that. Well, let me give you one more promise like we talked about before, if that's you. Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Jesus is anticipating that you would feel that way. And he wants you to know that no matter how deep your sin, no matter how dark your sin, Jesus has paid the price to redeem you from all of it. Not just some, not just the little, but the deepest, darkest thing that you've done can all be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Uh, he is a mighty savior. He's a wonderful king. Uh, he has done something wonderful. And all of the authors who have written the scripture, it's all the same message, which helps us understand it was inspired by God. So let's consider as this text and some application uh, for us. We've seen the eyewitness. We've seen the burning lamp. We've talked about how the Bible is um, its reliable, it's necessary, it's inspired by God. So you should have great confidence as you move forward in life decisions. Who is the primary person that you should consult the primary person that we should consult when we have a big life decision is God in his word. Maybe you're curious who you should marry. Maybe you're curious where you should live or what you should do with your life. God's word has something to say about all those things. So we should take counsel from the word of God. 
Let it be that place. That's the, it would be the fountainhead that you run to. It would be the water fountain for you that you would drink continually as you think about your life and what you should do. Second point of application is that if you're a Christian here today, no matter what you're going through, no matter what your struggle, no matter what your pain level, the best is yet to come. There is a great hope for you. The Bible says that the day is going to dawn and the morning star is going to rise, not outside of you, but what does Peter say? In your hearts. So the best is yet to come for you, even though this world is filled with so many trials and troubles. In the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, there's two parts to The Pilgrim's Progress. There's Pilgrim's Progress Part 1 and then Pilgrim's Progress Part 2, which is a man named John Bunyan wrote it. It's an allegory that's describing the Christian life. And in Part 2 is the story of Christiana, who is this man's, this man went to heaven, he went to the journey of the celestial city, and now Part 2 is picking up the story of his wife. And in the book, an angel comes to Christiana's house And the angel is talking to her that God's calling her to go on the journey of being a Christian. And what Christiana says is, oh, would you please just take me there right now? Just take me to heaven now that I wouldn't uh, endure all the difficulties. I wouldn't have to go through all the hard things that I would have to go through. And do you know what the angel replies to Christiana? It's not a real story. Uh, the angel says to her, Christiana, bitter before the sweet. Bitter before the sweet. It's the cross before the crown. It's the hardship now before the glory that is to come. Uh, In fact, if you're going through a bitter time in your life right now where you're curious about God's love for you and his care for you, maybe the bitter that you're tasting and how deep of drink, how you're drinking the bitterness and the hard thing in your life so deeply is going to make the sweetness all the more sweeter when you get to heaven. It's bitter before the sweet. So Christians have hope in this because the best is yet to come. And if you're an unbeliever here today, we're, we're talking about the second coming of Jesus. And the Bible says nobody knows when that will be. It could, it could be today. It could be this afternoon. The Bible does say what people will be doing in that day. It says people will be getting married and be giving a marriage. And people will be drinking and eating. The point of that is, who knows when it will be. It could be any time. People are doing that stuff all the time. So don't you want to be ready for that day? Don't you want to be at peace with God as you think about the return of Jesus? He came once to be incarnate. And to, and to be born in Bethlehem, and to live a life of a Savior. Though he was rich, he became poor. And he lived that perfect life and died on the cross and rose again. And he's coming back. Isn't something in your heart say, I want to be ready for that event. I, w- I want to know him. I want to have a right relationship with God when Jesus comes back. Well, then what you need to do is turn away from sin in your life. The sin that you might be clinging to that is more valuable to you than God, whatever that thing is, forsake it. Turn away from sin and turn to God and say, God, forgive me. 
I'm believing on you. I'm believing that your son Jesus died in my place and rose again. And that's my hope. And the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So I want you to be ready for that day. So it's great confidence for the Christian uh, in that we can take counsel from the word. It's great hope for the Christian that the best is yet to come. It's great encouragement to the unbeliever because that day is coming quickly. Um, And so we've talked about these two witnesses, the eyewitness and the burning lamp. We've talked about that the Bible that you have is... um, it's, it's uh, reliable, it's necessary, and it's inspired by God. And would God help us uh, really pay attention to it and really carve time out of our day to get into the Word? It looks different for everyone. And if you're uh, at a stage now where you think, I haven't been in the Word for a couple weeks or a couple months or a couple years, my encouragement to you would be, take a small step. You don't have to take a big step that involves, you know, hours and hours of of work. Take a small step of obedience to fill your life with scripture. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the glory of Jesus and that he is coming again. We're thankful that you've left us a burning lamp that we can have in this dark world. as this church is gathering for different events, I pray that that lamp would be their one source of, of uh, the one greatest source of encouragement for their lives. It would be that one source of guidance that they need. That the Bible would be that fountain to which they come and drink from your word and enjoy you and worship you and magnify you. Thank you for this church, God, and their kindness to, to invite me. We pray that Jesus would be magnified. And if there's people here that are curious about Christianity, curious about who Jesus is and what he's done, God, would you draw them to yourself? Help them them grow. Help them know the glories and the beauty of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.